This is an ABC podcast. Alan Hale had always been a sweet kid. Growing up in Launceston in the mid-1960s, he loved spending time in the company of animals. My bedroom, which was underneath the house, always had lots of stuffed birds and I always had a few live snakes and blue-tongued lizards. But things at home hadn't always been easy for Alan. And when he turned 15, life, Launceston, it all began to feel very claustrophobic. And he went a little off the rails. Well, I stole a few cars and... (laughs) Okay, okay. <laughs> and, but, but it wasn't like, you know, the police were after me and I had to leave town. It was, it was just something like an instinct that said, I need to be away. I don't need to be here. Alan's mum books him in to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist said, you know, Alan's a good boy. He's a good boy. I remember him saying those words. He said, but he just needs to get away. His mother takes this advice seriously wants to find a safer outlet for his energies. So she starts making calls. My mother knew somebody who was a a relative of the owner of the Taronga Park Zoo, Sir Edward Holstrom, and she asked whether or not he could give me a job in Sydney, which was the big smoke in those days, and it was a wild, evil place. And he said, yeah, no problems, send him here. That bit of trouble I got into pushed me into the right direction. Absolutely changed my life completely. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Heading off to Sydney, Alan's hoping for a reset, a chance to put all that trouble behind him. But trouble of an entirely different nature lay ahead. This trouble was furry, it was curious, and it was incredibly cute. Today on the show, a sprawling zoo, an eccentric benefactor, and an unsuspecting teenager who learns a vital life lesson. Where animals are concerned, you should never turn your back. Stepping off the plane in Sydney, Alan might be 15, but he doesn't look a day over 12. His first stop is to meet his benevolent new employer on the city's North Shore. Sir Edward Holstrom was a refrigeration king. Born into modest circumstances, he was notoriously hardworking and ambitious. And he'd made a vast fortune by inventing and selling fridges to Australians. His silent night model was known from suburbia to the deepest reaches of the outback. On arrival at Holstrom HQ, Alan shone through the dusty, noisy factory and through to an office, where Holstrom, now a very rich man in his 70s, still spends most of his days and some of his nights. And he was up the top on a, like a, a mezzanine floor that he had a bedroom in and he came out in his underpants. He was portly. I remember he had a white singlet on and black underwear and I, I think he had thongs on. <laughs> I wasn't impressed in the least bit, but then I was too excited to get to the zoo, so I didn't really I wouldn't have cared if he was hairy. You know, he owned the zoo, that's where I needed to be. Holstrom didn't exactly own the zoo. For twenty years he'd poured much of his fortune into the place through large donations, and he was now its honorary director, which did effectively give him control over Taronga's finances and its management. And now here he was. Titan of industry, knighted philanthropist, 
standing before Alan in his undies. He said, so you like animals, Alan? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He says, all right then, off you go, see how you go. And that was it. Walking through the entrance gates at Taronga Zoo for the first time, Alan has the feeling of crossing over from this world into another. If you closed your eyes, it was just like standing in the the deep jungle. Unbelievable, because they had lots of different birds, parrots, all sorts of tropical birds, and all the animals would be making noises. The lions would be, you know, coughing, making these growling cough noises. Especially, well, monkeys, they do this sort of whoop, 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 and it seemed to permeate everything in the zoo. If it doesn't matter where you're standing, you could always hear them. Alan is assigned to work under the head keeper for monkeys, and he quickly settles into his job, learning the rhythms of life at the zoo. It's a schedule primarily dictated by one thing. There was always plenty of crap. That was all I did was sweep it up, pick it up, put it in a wheelbarrow and go on to the next one. As monkey butler, Alan also does a lot of feeding. And while some food came from a nearby farm, it wasn't the zoo's only source. They had a sponsor, and that was Tip Top Cakes, and they supplied the zoo with all their unsold goods, cakes, blamanges, <laughs> vanilla slices. Can you imagine doing that these days? You know, feeding a whole bunch of, of monkeys, you know, vanilla slice. <laughs> After a few months at the zoo, Alan hasn't seen Sir Edward Hallstrom again in person. But his influence on the place was keenly felt. You'd see another enclosure go up and something would be in there and they'd be saying, oh, this is, you know, Sir Edward's new plaything. Holstrom took a deep interest in acquiring wild and exotic specimens from all over the world to add to the zoo's collection. Like the time he finally succeeded in acquiring a gorilla named King Kong. He was purchased from a US seller who was gifted a pair of koalas in return. And before the gorilla arrived on a ship from Los Angeles, the zoo's keepers and carpenters are told to get to work. And then suddenly there was a mad construction of making cages always out of cement and wire and stuff. And they sort of thought, oh, God, it's a bloody, you know, Sir Edward again. Bought a couple of gorillas and, and now we, you know, we're going to have to drop everything. The other thing Alan soon realises is that under the smooth veneer of the zoo's daily operations, life in close proximity to these animals is highly unpredictable. Everybody was happy working there, but there was always that undercurrent of these are wild animals. And there wasn't any of the regulations, if you like. Well, there were no regulations with the zoo. It wasn't just that the animals were wild. There was also the very human matter of practical jokes played on new recruits, which Alan experiences firsthand when he's asked to feed the leopards one afternoon. He'd been instructed to hold a 10-kilo piece of horse meat off the end of a garden fork, dangling it above an opening in the enclosure. You'd drop it through a, a manhole, you know, 20 foot down, there's the leopard, and he'd jump on the piece of meat, and that was his feed for the day. 
and they sometimes would run up the wall and actually come out of the manhole and grab the meat off the fork. So can this leopard climb out of the manhole if it chooses to? Oh, absolutely. It could have, which was unbelievably dangerous, incredible. And they laughed. They all laughed their heads off because I was absolutely ashen-faced and my legs were shaking. And that happened on several occasions. These sort of things was like a common occurrence. It was little wonder then that Alan much preferred leaving the leopards to the other zoo workers, instead returning each morning to the relative calm of cleaning out the monkey cages. I loved it because I spent most of the time by myself, in my head, and I got to know different monkeys individually. And I'd go in to clean, and those ones that I knew would come up and want to hold my hand, or they'd jump on my shoulder and want to sort of go through my hair as I was trying to clean up. And so it was, one ordinary, sunny Sydney morning, when Alan started working his way through the monkey cages. And I was probably distracted thinking about trying to get a girlfriend, and I was probably in my head and not really paying a lot of attention to what I was doing. Alan enters a fenced veranda area. The keepers use this as a storage-cum-tea room. Off this room, the half-dozen monkey enclosures are arranged in a semicircle, each locked away behind another gate. Alan cleans up after the spider monkeys, then the cappuccino monkeys. And when he's about halfway through, he arrives at the macaque monkey enclosure. They're small, a smallish monkey, probably about two, two and a half feet high. A macaque's tail is about as long as its body. They have soft, light brown fur, pale pink faces, expressive eyes, and they're incredibly dexterous. Here, 30 of them live together. A family group, lots of babies, juveniles running around, they're the real funny ones to watch, and then lots of adults and then one boss monkey, who's the boss of everybody. The doors going into the, into the enclosures were like big iron jail doors type of thing, and it was heavy enough to lift up again to get out, but too heavy for the monkeys and that to get out. So I lifted it up, walked in. They don't just slide down behind you. You have to pull them down, right? So it just stayed up, and... I suppose I was about 10 foot, what's that, three and a half, four metres. (laughs) And then it suddenly occurred to me, damn, I I haven't closed the door. I sort of went to to run for the the door and there was already a young juvenile monkey looking outside the door. And as soon as the boss monkey saw him, he immediately ran over and all the rest of them followed. And by the time it took me to get to the door, they were gone. They were out the door, mate. You would not believe it how quickly they can move. Probably about two and a half seconds, maybe three seconds. Too late. All of them. That's every monkey in that cage. Not one monkey was left. Standing at the entrance to the enclosure, Alan watches as the macaques wreak havoc in the makeshift storeroom. There were just a sea of monkeys getting into everything, stuffing cream cakes into their mouths and looking at things and pulling drawers open and all that sort of stuff. You know, they were just everywhere. Alan's in mild shock, but he's not panicking. Sure, there's a bit of a mess here to clean up, 
But this minor incident, it can still be easily solved. I looked at him and I thought, I'm only going to take an armful of food into their cage and as soon as one of them sees it, it'll go in there and then they'll all go back in again. And then I'll clean the mess up and nobody will know. I sort of hadn't even made the move to go and pick any food up and the back door opened up and the, the head keeper, he like crashed it open. And um, when he did that, the monkeys, they just emptied out the door again. And they completely flattened the head keeper. When I stuck my head out the door, he was lying on his back on the ground with dirty footmarks all over his clean uniform, over his face and over his hat. And he was just lying there totally in shock. But of course, they'd all gone put and they'd completely disappeared. And he sort of shouted at me from his back. He still hadn't got up. He said, Alan, what the bloody hell have you done? And I couldn't really answer that. Um, it all happened so fast. Alan and the head keeper, now on his feet, wander out of the enclosed storeroom. Before them are the first rumblings of catastrophe. The public had come in by this time. Mothers with kids and holding onto their hands and all that in anticipation. And all these monkeys are wandering amongst them, grabbing brown paper bags of peanuts out of their hands. <laughs> it's like a scene from Jumanji come to life, as the monkeys are absorbed into the oncoming crowd leaving a trail of destruction behind them. <laughs> and the public are thinking, this is a zoo experience, you know, and it's quite normal. And one person I saw, he was trying to pat the boss monkey, and the boss monkey sort of went, you know, and, and showed him his teeth, which are about three inches long, and he sort of reeled back and thought, geez, is this, is this how it's supposed to be? <laughs> Amidst the chaos, the head headkeeper has been called to the scene. He and the rest of the staff begin trying to round up the macaques. And they weren't having any success at catching the monkeys because the monkeys recognised all of them. And as soon as they saw them, they would take off, knowing that they'd done something wrong. They didn't catch one monkey that was in the zoo, not one. And eventually the monkeys made their way over the 10-foot-high wall and spread out into the suburbs and loose on Sydney. The keepers know what they're up against here. 30 macaque monkeys that have breached the zoo's walls? They could be anywhere. They're such inquisitive things that moving into the suburbs is like going into space. Sydney, capital of New South Wales. So everything would have been of interest to them. Sydney is a harbour city. The ferries are as busy as the trains. Because I'd never had this happen before. <laughs> so they just sort of said, well, we can't do anything. We have to wait until the public has called us and then we can send it a team. But funnily enough, no-one at the zoo even thought to make their search public. It never reached the news. I never heard and nobody heard anything about monkeys in the suburbs. I used to say, there goes my 15 minutes of fame. 
because nobody ever wanted to interview me. <laughs> Meanwhile, meetings are held, strategies discussed, and the keepers begin to mobilise in anticipation of the call. Some guys got their nets and their hooks with, with nets on the end of them, like you see in the cartoons. And then within a day or two of the escape, word comes in of a first sighting. The public would ring up and say, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a monkey in my front yard. He wouldn't belong to you guys, would he? So they'd jump into the ute, half a dozen guys sitting in the back of it with all their equipment, and off we'd go to that address. If you crowd a monkey and you give him a small hole to escape, he'll always go for that hole. So you only sort of had to sort of crowd up on the side and then put a net across and he'd run and then bang straight into the net. After some early successes, the calls keep rolling in. Mostly the monkeys are found in bushy areas within a kilometre of the zoo. Garbage bins are a popular spot, as macaques are expert at sniffing out food. They also turn up in unexpected places. One woman calls in to report that a monkey had climbed into her bathroom through an open window. So we did for about two weeks. We were clambering around people's backyards and inside their houses trying to catch monkeys. Even the boss monkey is soon recaptured. He wasn't the sort of one that you could slip a noose over his neck. You know, you had to put him in a net so that he couldn't get out and then carry him to the ute. Slowly but surely, the macaque family is reassembled, brought back into Taronga from the wilds of Sydney. As they come, it's like old mates meeting again. (laughs) Ten macaques are returned. Fifteen. Then 20. And then there'd be more monkeys and then more monkeys and more monkeys. Eventually, a headcount reveals that of the 30 escaped macaques, only one is still missing. The zoo staff wait impatiently for the last panicked person to call in. And then someone did and they said there's a a monkey down on the jetty where the uh, ferry used to come into the zoo. So we all piled into the ute and, and headed down there. And as soon as he saw the, the keepers, he took off to the end of the jetty and then he was trapped. So we all sort of hurried down there with our nets, thinking this will be an easy catch because he'll try and run past us and we'll get him in the net. Half a dozen keepers, the net spread between them, take slow, steady steps down the jetty, playing chicken with a monkey probably got about 10 feet away from the monkey at the very end of the jetty and the monkey sort of just looked at everybody and looked at the net and then just dived straight into the water. The head keeper was there and he said to me, right, you let him go, so you go in and get him. So I had to strip down on my underpants and I dived in. And then I came back up again I looked around, I couldn't see the monkey and they were all standing on the edge of the jetty and they're all pointing and saying, he's over there, he's over there, he's under the water. And then I suddenly turned my head around and here he is swimming about a metre away from me at the same depth and he's doing breaststroke too. <laughs> he's just swimming, <laughs> swimming and looking at me. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to be out swum. I'd never live that down. So he started to claw up the surface again It was very simple for me to just sort of swim behind him and pinion both his arms behind his back and then do like what I called a a Bondi 
rescue. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't struggle. I think he was happy to be caught, to tell the honest truth, because they're very social and he probably missed all his little friends and after a few minutes you couldn't see which one it was. And are you back to cleaning the cage again the next day? Back to cleaning cages again, yes. Miraculously, life at the zoo soon gets more or less back to normal. Alan spends his mornings cleaning his way through the monkey enclosures, his afternoons doing odd jobs around the place. Which is how, about a month after the macaque's safe return, Alan is given a new task one afternoon. I remember the headkeeper came down and he said, look, can you go and clean out the albino kangaroo cage because Hallstrom could call in at any time and, you know, he wouldn't like to see a whole lot of crap around the place. These albino kangaroos were part of Hallstrom's private collection. For years, they'd been something of an obsession for him, with their plush white fur and pinkish eyes. Kept away from public view, they were equal parts pet project and pleasure item. Can you imagine the cost of, of getting, you know, say, 10 albino kangaroos? Because there's an enormous amount of trouble trying to move a kangaroo from one place to another. You know, you've got to put them in a, a sack that ties off at their neck and they've got to have a needle to settle them down, you know, and they can't lie down, otherwise they choke on their own fluid in the lungs, all this sort of stuff. From the late 1950s, Hallstrom had put out an open call in the papers. Anyone who could provide him with an albino kangaroo would be paid a handsome reward. And the public answered. Kangaroos arrived from all corners of the country. Many had poor eyesight, and some didn't survive the long journey. But those that did make it were prized by Holstrom. And occasionally, they were shared with his most celebrated acquaintances. Australian philanthropist Sir Edward Holstrom and his longtime friend Alfred Hitchcock present a pair of rare albino kangaroos to the Los Angeles Zoo. But on this afternoon, Alan, charged with cleaning out their enclosure, he knows none of this. He just follows directions to a part of the zoo that he'd never ventured into before. The enclosure was like behind a whole lot of other old cages and it was backed onto the 10-foot-high perimeter wall, which had spikes on top. And I knew nothing about kangaroos then. They just said, clean that out. That was all the instruction I was given. I just sort of opened up the gate and walked in with my bucket. They had metal buckets and broom. When I closed the gate, I would have sort of probably dropped the bucket down, you know, and wouldn't clatter, bang, clatter, bang sort of thing. When I clattered and banged in there, they just completely panicked and followed each other. Whatever one did, they all did. So they were sort of running around. And it only took a few seconds for the panic to set in and for them to completely lose control of what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go. Standing just inside the entrance, Alan watches as the kangaroos start to whip each other up into a frenzy. The intensity and chaos climbing with each passing second. Frantic is the word. And they're all crowding into a corner trying to jump over the top of each other. You know, it was just horrific. Some of them threw themselves like against the wall trying to get over it. 
and another kangaroo broke a leg, you know, and one jumped so high that he could get up 10 foot, but he couldn't get over the, the spikes and he ended up impaling himself on the spikes. So after I'd sort of seen all this carnage, I went outside and closed the door. Alan tries to steal himself. He's got to tell the headkeeper what's just happened. Rushing into his office, Alan finds him sitting at his desk. And then I said, oh, look, those albino kangaroos, they tried to get out and one's broken its leg and I could see the look on his face. I picture it right now. He's like gone from, yeah, Al, what do you want to, oh, my God, no. And he's thinking about his position with Sir Edward Holstron, you know, being probably the favourite boy, and he's seeing that all dissipate. That's that's the look on his face. And then I said, and one another kangaroo's stuck on the spikes, and then he started to hold his head in his hands, looking down and saying, oh, my God, what am I going to tell Sir Edward? You know, and that's all he said, oh, my God. That afternoon, as he's about to head home, Alan gets some bad news of his own. The head keeper came in and he said, Al, I don't like to have to tell you this, but we're giving you seven days' notice. And I was so stupid, I didn't even know what seven days' notice was. And I kept on going there for seven days and I turned up on the eighth day. And then the foreman there said, are you supposed to be here? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Don't I work here? But Alan didn't work at Taronga Zoo anymore. A couple of years after Alan's stint at the zoo, things changed. After a critical review in the late 60s and an investigation into illegal animal smuggling, Sir Edward Holstrom's reign at Taronga Zoo came to an end. As for Alan, he eventually landed on his feet and he spent the last half century bouncing around Australia, living on a yacht, working on an avocado farm and doing a lot of wildlife rescue. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you have a story about animal escapades, for example, you can send it on over to us Days Like These at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Today's episode was reported by me on the lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri peoples. Sound design and engineering on this episode by Simon Branthwaite. The supervising producer was Sophie Townsend. Our brilliant executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. See you next time. The cosmetic enhancement industry in Australia is booming. We saw an unprecedented demand, a tidal wave of not just our returning patients, but also new patients. It's become fashionable. They are now literally lunchtime procedures. They're not taboo. It's built upon the premise that if you look good, you'll feel good. And we're inundated with serums, injections and surgical interventions that promise to boost our beauty and combat the signs of ageing. I was like, who did your nose? I need to know where. I'm going to go to him. It's not only girls that are having these procedures. It is everybody that is having these procedures. 
but beneath the glossy exteriors lie some troubling truths. This idea that young people should be getting all these things done is just so toxic. It's brainwashing women to hate themselves for money. You have regrets and, oh, what have I done? It's such a silly mistake and I'm a monster. It's a very small leap from the hairdresser to the spa to the cosmetic surgeon. I'm Siobhan Marin, and in this new series, Face Value, I'll find out why so many Australians are choosing to cosmetically enhance themselves, despite the risks and recovery times. Throbbing, purple. After three days, it became pussy. There's no oxygen going to the area. And how video platforms and social media filters are rewiring the way we see ourselves and others. 86% of the physicians that said that their cosmetic consultations had gone up listed appearance on video conferencing as the reason that their patients were saying that they wanted to come in. Anyone can download Instagram. And so then you've got like 11 year olds who are looking at themselves and thinking, wow, I look so much prettier with filters. I wish I looked like this. It takes us to some pretty murky territories. How come those features are not celebrated when they are on coloured women, but when they're on white women, then all of a sudden it seems cool? They just see me from my social media, so they don't know that I naturally do have an ethnic nose. They don't know the torment I went through growing up, and I don't have to explain that to them. But it's like that's what people are seeing from me face value. From Botox injections and lip filler to nose jobs and a Brazilian butt lift, we're meeting the people chasing their aesthetic ideal. If you can look young and stay fresh, why not? I'm 27, it's good age. The medical professionals making it possible. If you're truly happy in yourself, you know, you wouldn't come and see someone like me. And the people choosing to jump off the cosmetic enhancement conveyor belts. I don't want to have constant needles and things put in my face. I think at some point you've got to say, who am I fooling? Hear this four-part series by searching for Face Value on the ABC Listen app.